My name is Tom Switzer. I'm the Executive Director here at the Centre for Independent Studies. And for those of you who don't know a great deal about us, we are a public policy research organisation that is primarily committed to promoting the principles of classical liberalism. So our main focus is policy, um, productivity enhancing reform to help make Australia a freer and more prosperous place. We're very much engaged in the Indigenous policy debate, education policy debate. We're strong defenders of NAPLAN, pro-choice policies. And among other things, we've been very much interested in the China policy debate in recent years. Uh, we have uh, just a few months ago hosted the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, uh, in Canberra. About two months ago, we hosted a great debate between Professor John Mearsheimer and Professor Hugh White. We had about 500, 600 people in Canberra, which was a first for us in Canberra. And so we're front and centre in the battle of ideas, but we take history very seriously, not just economic history. We've published many books on economic history, but we're very much involved in the debates over political history and cultural history. And that brings us here this evening. As many of you know, Ian McFarlane is a distinguished Australian for a decade. From uh, 1996 to 2006, he was the governor of our central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia. Former Prime Minister John Howard, a regular guest here at CIS, uh, has said, uh, and he's rated, uh, Ian is the standout economic advisor of his prime ministership for the best part of a dozen years. And according to the Australian newspaper recently, quote, for 50 years, Big Mac uh, has counselled uh, <laughs> prime ministers and treasurers, soothed company chiefs and explained the arcane tools of economic modelling to students. It's a friendly yet commanding voice that has been heard in Oxford and Paris in private dining rooms in the cafes surrounding Sydney's Martin Place and across the airways by the public at large. And it's interesting to note that just a few weeks ago, Ian was on uh, radio with, of all people, uh, John Laws. Ian book, Ian's book is called Ten Remarkable Australians. They made their mark on the world but were forgotten. Copies, of course, are available at the reception area. Uh, according to Paul Kelly, one of our nation's most distinguished political historians and economic commentators, he has said about the book, quote, this is a journey into Australia's forgotten past, a series of compelling portraits of astonishing figures whose lives deserve to be recalled and celebrated. That's Paul Kelly on Ian McFarlane's book. The book is published by Connor Court. And as I say, copies are available at reception. And with that, please welcome Ian McFarlane. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Tom, and uh, and thank everyone who uh, made the effort to come here tonight. It's good to see that there are a lot of people who enjoy books and uh, enjoy history in the city. And I'd particularly like to thank the Centre for Independent Studies for organising the event. I think this is the third or fourth time that I've uh, presented before a CIS audience, uh, but the first time on a non-economic subject. I suspect the question some of you are asking is why did I choose to write a book on a subject apparently outside my area of expertise? It would have been much easier to write on an economic subject. In fact, I was approached to do so by a publisher immediately after I left the Reserve Bank 13 years ago. It was actually Richard Walsh, and he was from that wonderful company, Angus and Robertson, that used to be a publisher. Not anymore. I think it was our biggest publisher at one stage. Right, but the subject of this book I don't think is really totally outside my area of expertise because as a, a lifelong reader of books on history and biography, 
at some point, I think it was clear that I was going to choose to write something on the subject rather than just read about it. And I can date exactly when I first thought of the idea for this book. It was in 2003 when I was reading a biography of Rupert Brooke by an English author and I came across the Australian Frederick Kelly. Kelly had won the Diamond Skulls at the Henley Regatta three times and an Olympic gold medal in rowing and so was a celebrated sportsman. But it turns out that was only the second string to his bow. He was first and foremost a classical music composer and concert pianist who gave solo concerts and has played with both the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and the London Symphony Orchestra. What an amazing man, I thought. I should learn more about him and possibly even write about him. Incidentally, last night, my wife and I attended a concert of some of his works at the Chapter Hall of St Mary's Cathedral. So his music is now finally being revived. Now, that's Kelly. Sometime later, when reading a book by a Canadian author about early attempts to climb Mount Everest, I came across another Australian, George Finch, who had a good claim to being the world's best mountaineer at that time. In 1922, he had climbed higher than anyone else had ever climbed. And with a bit of better support from the British climbing establishment, might have even been able to reach the top of Everest. He never claimed that, but he, he got higher than anyone else had ever got. And by the way, he was also a professor of chemistry and a fellow of the Royal Society. And the connection between him and Peter Finch, the first Australian to win the Academy Award for Best Actor, was an intriguing one. Was he Peter Finch's father, as Peter Finch believed, or was he not? Again, I want to learn more. I thought my interest would be shared by others. The third event that spurred my interest was when I came across a biography of Harry Hawker in a Berkelow catalogue. The Hawker Aircraft Company was the best-known name in British military aviation in the 20th century, and it got its name from a young Australian of humble birth <laughs> and limited education. Not only was Harry Hawker a trophy-winning pilot and aeroplane designer, including the famous Sopwith Camel, um, he was the first person to attempt to fly across the Atlantic Ocean, the longest continuous flight over water ever attempted. He only got halfway, but he survived. And that was another interesting story. And because he survived, he became a hero. That adventure in 1919 was an amazing story on its own. By now, the idea for a book in the form of a series of biographical essays had clearly formed. It's only a matter of finding time to write it. I want to make it clear that my motive for writing the book was not an altruistic one. I did not set out to rescue these people from obscurity and create a memorial to them. If that happens, it'll be well and good, but it'll only be a, a byproduct of what I aim to do. My motive was much simpler. I simply found these stories extremely interesting and assumed that a lot of other people would find them interesting if they read them. In fact, the original title of the book was Interesting Lives, but I was persuaded that I had to change it to something a bit more positive. <laughs> I ended up with ten people, which is more than I expected when I first started writing. They all had several things in common. 
First, they were all born in the second half of the 19th century in colonial Australia before Federation. They all spent most of their lives abroad and were, in a sense, the first wave of Australian expatriates. They all lived extremely interesting and, in many cases, adventurous lives. They all excelled at more than one thing and they all became well-known, even famous, but are now largely forgotten by the public. I've put the list of ten names before my friends and they have trouble recognising more than one or two. So readers or members of the audience should not feel inadequate if they have not heard of them. I was not interested in celebrating the already famous. So a Melba, a Monash, a Mawson or a Kingsford Smith would not make my list. They've already been honoured with knighthoods and their portraits on banknotes. 13 people born in Australia have been commemorated on banknotes, but none are in my book. This gives me comfort that I'm not simply duplicating what is already well known. My decision to write about people who were not well known did not help me, however, when it came to finding a publisher. I was rejected by three large publishers who told me the book was not commercially viable. They didn't read it, they just said that the subject was not commercially uh, viable. Fortunately, I found a small publisher, Connor Court, who had confidence in me and to whom I'm grateful. I can understand the attitude of the big publishers in a way. They're business people, they have to make a profit in an industry where money is hard to come by. They felt that readers would be reluctant to buy books about people they'd never heard of. Maybe they're right, I hope not. Um, unfortunately, this attitude means that publishers are happy to churn out repeated biographies of the same old names, just as Hollywood studios regularly do remakes of earlier films. I first noticed this when I saw that there were three biographies of Monash published in the past decade. None, by the way, as good as the one by Geoffrey Searle in 1982. And how many biographies have there been of Ned Kelly? <laughs> I can tell you, there have been 11 published since 2000. <laughs> Sorry, there was 12, 12, not 11, 12. And Captain Cook, 10 over the same period. And Don Bradman, 11. By the way, the best biography of Bradman, for any cricket buffs here, in my opinion, and I read a few of them, was written by Irving Rosenwater in England in 1978. Right, now, I've already introduced you to three of my subjects, Kelly, Finch and Hawker. I will now go quickly through the other seven, although it's a challenge to do so quickly as they all led such eventful lives. First, George Morrison, also known as Chinese Morrison or Morrison of Peking. Traveller, doctor, journalist and personal advisor to the President of China. While he spent the second half of his life in China, his adventures in Australia and the Pacific in the, in the first half of his life are worthy of a book in themselves. For example, at the age of 20, he walked from the Gulf of Carpentaria to Melbourne. This was only 20 years after Burke and Wills had failed to do the journey in the opposite direction. It was um, 3,260 kilometres and he did it in 123 days. Morrison led an adventurous life in which he managed to get himself speared on one occasion and shot on another. Uh, next, Sir Hubert Wilkins, polar explorer, 
First World War photographer. As Captain Wilkins' military cross and bar, he was the only wartime photographer to be decorated for bravery. He was knighted for being the first person to fly from America to Europe across the Arctic Ocean. He also had the Order of Lenin pinned on him by Stalin, not for services to communism, but for his Arctic exploits in searching for lost Russian pilots. He was also the first person to attempt to go under the North Pole by submarine. He failed, and many, many people thought he was mad to try it, yet 27 years later, two US submarines performed the feat. Next, Henry Handel Richardson, under this pen name, she wrote what many considered to be the great Australian novel, The Fortunes of Richard Barney. It's in fact a trilogy of three separate novels that took her 20 years to write. She's better known for a lighter piece, The Getting of Wisdom, which was made into a popular film in the 1970s. Both were written in London, but she had spent nearly 15 years before that in Germany, mainly training to be a pianist. Next, Lindhurst Faulkner Giblin, scholar, marginal member of the Bloomsbury Group, international sportsman, gold prospector, plantation manager, member of, and member of parliament who volunteered for the First World War at the age of 43 and um, came back as Major Giblin, Military Cross Distinguished Service Order. At the age of 47, he turned to economics and ended up as Professor of Economics at Melbourne University and the most important economic advisor to the Australian government during the 1920s and 1930s. Next, John Peter Russell, trained as an engineer but turned to painting. Spent most of his life in France, first in Paris, later in Brittany. One of the few people to form an easy friendship with Vincent van Gogh, a very difficult man. He also knew Monet, Rodin and Matisse. He was a wealthy man, lived a comfortable life and raised a large family in France. He died in obscurity. Now his best paintings are worth more than a million dollars. Last year, the State Gallery of New South Wales held the biggest exhibition of his work yet. And so his name has well and truly been revived. Next, Gilbert Murray, scholar, playwright, poet and authority on ancient Greek. Made a professor at the age of 23, then spent a decade in the London theatre world. George Bernard Shaw parodied him, him parodied, it's very difficult to say, in his play Major Barbara. Murray returned to academia and was appointed Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford University. Prominent public intellectual in Britain and author of 61 books. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> Married into the British aristocracy, then spent much of his life campaigning for peace via the League of Nations. Next and finally, Reginald, better known as Snowy Baker, reputed to be Australia's greatest all-round sportsman, who represented Australia internationally in four different sports. Claimed to have excelled in 26 different sports. Later became a boxing promoter whose life was intertwined with the tragedy of Les Darcy. Became a pioneer of the Australian film industry, making five films in Australia and six in Hollywood, where he lived from his mid-30s. So that's each of the essays. Each essay in this book tells the story tells the story of how a life developed from birth, childhood, education, 
marriage, family relationships, professional achievements and setbacks. I try to make an assessment of their character and how important they were in the wider scheme of things. So the book is mainly about people, but it's also about historical events in which they participated, about different countries and about the times in which they lived. Their stories tell us a lot about the Australia of their time, although most of the action takes place overseas. The thing I wanted to emphasise about Australia was that even in this early time, we were very outward looking. Physically, we were insular, but mentally, we were always looking abroad for inspiration. It's not surprising. If you are small, you have to look abroad. A citizen of London, New York or Paris might think that everything worthwhile was available at home. If you're from a small country, you would never make that mistake. Each of my subjects started their odyssey by getting on a ship and sailing to London. That was always the starting point. But their stories broadened out from there so that France, Germany, Switzerland, the United States, Canada and China also figure prominently in these stories. But the link with Britain was still extremely strong. And the similarities and differences between the two countries is a constant background to each of these stories. The English statesman Sir Thomas Sir Charles Dilke visited Australia in 1880 and was surprised by the similarities between the two countries. He said, quote, Australia was like England with the upper class left out. <laughs> now, I think there was a lot to be said for this summary. We had mostly English institutions, English law and English education, and we had rich and poor citizens, just as England. But we didn't have a leisure class with private incomes who didn't have to work. Nor do we have the equivalent of Eton, although we inherited the English system of private schools. We had six universities at this time of roughly equal status. We didn't have an Oxford or a Cambridge. In our armed forces, we didn't have smart regiments and not so smart ones. The English liked to establish a class hierarchy within each area of life. We didn't. We really didn't have a class system to speak of. So we were clearly more egalitarian than the mother country and we were richer in terms of national income per head, but we were a lot smaller. In 1900, we were 3.8 million and the UK or Britain was 40 million. We're now up to 25 million people and closing the gap with Britain, which has 60 million. And as a result of the great post-war immigration programs, we are more multicultural and less British than we used to be. However, a lot of the British influence lingers and has underpinned the stability of our democracy. Some people are surprised when I remind them that five of our post-war prime ministers went to Oxford and there would have been six if Kim Beasley had won. I mentioned this to, at a gentleman's club in Melbourne and someone said, what, no one from Cambridge? <laughs> Although the book concentrates on 10 remarkable Australian lives, a lot of other familiar names are dotted through the pages from Australia, Prime Ministers Barton, Fisher, Hughes, Bruce, Scullin and Lyons make appearances, as do Monash and Melba, and sportsmen such as Trumper, Spofforth and Darcy, as well as painters Roberts and Streeton. Looking abroad, no account of this historical epic would be complete without a role for Churchill, who appears in two essays, as does Einstein. 
figures from the world of entertainment also appear, such as George Bernard Shaw and Charlie Chaplin. One that surprised me was the actress Elizabeth Taylor, who gets three mentions. How could this be? Well, it turns out that Snowy Baker taught her how to ride a horse for National Velvet, the film that made her famous. She also co-starred with Peter Finch in a film, so she gets a mention in the Finch essay. MGM made another film starring her called Rhapsody, based on a book by Henry Handel Richardson, so she gets a mention in the Richardson essay. I am indebted for this last piece of information to Bruce Beresford, the director of the film The Getting of Wisdom. He went on to describe Rhapsody as an absolute stinker, so I didn't follow it up by trying to look at it. One thing I was certain of when I planned this book is that I wanted it to be a series of essays or chapters. I was never interested in writing a whole book about one life. I've always liked the concept of a book of essays. My favourites when I was younger were by Bertrand Russell and George Orwell. More recent masters of the essay form are Clive James, Malcolm Gladwell. Biographical essays also have a long pedigree, starting with Aubrey's Brief Lives in the 17th century. Australian examples are John Hetherington's Australians, Nine Profiles, and more recently, Ross McMullen's Farewell, Dear People. I find it satisfying to read a series of short biographical essays because each is different. As John Howard expressed it, each of these people is refreshingly different. If the one you're reading is not exactly to your taste, the next one probably will be. There's always something to look forward to. And I should add at this point that to the best of my knowledge, none of the subjects of these biographies ever met another. There are two cases where one refers to another, but no cases of actual meetings that I'm aware of. The other thing I had strong views on was the structure of the printed book. Not only do I like reading books, I like books as physical objects. I like them to be well-designed, well-printed and well-bound. That's why this book is an illustrated hardback with a dust cover. It's more expensive than a paperback, but it's a better and longer-lasting book. So that, ladies and gentlemen, brings me to the end of my presentation. I hope you get as much pleasure out of reading the book as I did out of the research and writing. The only part for me that was exasperating was finding a publisher. But I finally found one and I am completely happy with what he produced. I think it's a a really good-looking book. But before I found him, I consoled myself with the fact that J.K. Rowling was rejected by 12 (laughs) publishers before she found one that would take a chance on a Harry Potter series which allowed her to become the biggest-selling author in 100 years. Thank you very much. Great. And by the way, you mentioned five uh, Oxford educated Australian Prime Ministers, obviously Bob Hawke, Malcolm Fraser, um, uh, Tony Abbott, um, Malcolm Turnbull. Who's the fifth one? Who's the fifth? It's the hard one. John Gordon. John Gordon. Right. So obviously before the war. Hang on. No, John Gordon. No. Yeah, but he was educated before oh, the war. Yeah, would have been educated yeah, before right. the war. Yeah, right. Things you'll learn here at CIS. Yeah, yeah. Now, this book, uh, you've obviously told us what, what motivated you to write the book and why you chose 
these uh, 10 eminent but sadly forgotten Australians. Tell us about the research process. It was a three-year process, but tell us how you went about the research. Well, in a way, it was longer than that. I guess I did a lot of reading before I even thought about putting pen to paper. But uh, the main source for this, the starting point, is the fact that these people were prominent enough in their own life that most of them had biographies written of them. Mm. So the first thing you started with was the biography. But then you have to be a bit suspicious. I'm a bit suspicious about biographies because the biographers tend to fall in love with their subject. Mm. They tend to exaggerate their importance and they're less sceptical than they should be about some of the claims. So you have to read more widely. You have to read other books from that era that mention the person that you're... uh, looking into intending to write about. So the, the primary source for all this is actually books. Um, I list 90 books in the uh, bibliography. The interesting thing is I actually own 74 of them. <laughs> and there's a good reason for that. And the reason is it's much easier now to be a biographer than it would have been 20 years ago because um, I use a site called biblio.com. I think there are others as well that aggregates the catalogues of all the second-hand booksellers in the English-speaking world. And if you're a member of it uh, and you want a particular book, just key in the author's name and the title of the book, press a button, and it it scans all these catalogues, instantly gives you a a list of the people who've got that book. You press a button, choose the one, and two weeks later it turns up. Uh, And most of these aren't very expensive. Most of them, I mean, $20, $25. Some of them are even cheaper than the postage. Uh, a couple were expensive. But these are secondary source books. Did you learn anything new in the course of your research? Did you find anything new? Well, I found a few things. Um, uh, I found quite a bit about Giblin, because I actually, Giblin, I read his letters too. I didn't just read, because uh, there's not much written. There's no biography of him. So I read his letters and I found out quite a lot, including one of the things is that he was bankrupt at one stage. This man became the, the chief uh, economic advisor of the Australian government in, um, <laughs> in, in, in the 30s. And, uh, uh, He's bankrupt. Yeah. Mind you, he was a gold prospector at that time, and I suspect most gold, <laughs> yeah, a right. lot of gold prospectors became bankrupt. Um, I found out a little bit about... Uh, I found it, I, But what I would have to say is I found out a lot more that was supposed to be true that turned out not to be true. Yeah. I found out an enormous number of occasions yes. uh, where the claim was made and uh, I was suspicious. For example, and two of those two of those people in the book are claimed to have been British boxing champions. Now, that's immediately suspicious it, because if the person making the claim knew anything about the subject, they would have said what division they were in mm. and what year. They'd be specific. Yeah. And, again, the beauty of modern technology, all the records going back to 1850 are there. And I quickly was able to check and discover that they, that they were completely wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, why would they make something like that up? Well, the first person, the first author who wrote it, I don't know why she wrote that, but the second author just quoted the first one. Oh, right. And, <laughs> and, and in fact, a lot of history, I think, <laughs> yeah. works out that way. So you found plenty of stories that were false. Who's your favourite character? Well, I don't have a favourite character. But of the readers, amongst the readers who have got back to me, there are two, I think, that stand out. And the first one is um, Hawker. Now, with a bit of luck, we won't get a photo of Hawker come up. Here, there he is, Hawker. Um, Hawker was um, of humble birth, born near Melbourne. Father was a uh, blacksmith. 
Falker left school at 14, but was a brilliant, intuitive, self-taught mechanic in engineer. Went to England, got a job at the Sopwith Company uh, as a mechanic, quickly uh, got his flying certificate. Took, in those days, it took one month to get the flying certificate. And after one month later, he was actually Sopwith's chief test pilot. Wow. And, um, and he was a, a very good engineer. He did a lot of the designing in the air, yeah. and particularly uh, of the Sopwith Camel. Which the Sopwith Camel, for those who don't know, is the, was the plane, the fighter plane of the First World War that shot down most, of, most German planes, and including it shot down the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen was also the plane that Biggles flew. Yes. Elder members of the audience. Um, anyhow, the next thing, as I said, is that uh, after the war was over, he, did, he, he was so valuable as a test pilot and, engi and, and engineer, they didn't risk him in the, in the First World War. But straight after the First World War, there was a prize for the first person to fly across the Atlantic. And so Hawker was immediately entered it, and they found the shortest distance, which was from Newfoundland to Ireland, so he took his plane over the Newfoundland on a boat, reassembled it, and took off. And everyone knew when he'd taken off. After a day, he hadn't, he hadn't turned up. Two days, still hadn't turned up. Three days, four days. After six days, everyone assumed he was dead. Yeah. The king sent his condolences to his wife, and it was, uh, the situation was also known in Australia. So Banjo Patterson wrote a poem in his honour. After day eight, he turned up in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? Well, it turns out he had a plan B. When the plane engine started to falter, he flew into where the shipping lanes were and just hoped that there might be a ship, and there was. He landed in front of the ship, got picked up, but this ship didn't have a radio or a wire. Uh. And this is 1919. So everyone assumed he was dead. And so when he reappeared, I've got this photo. This is the triumphant return. Of Hawker. <laughs> uh, the crowds lined the street on the way to Buckingham Palace. He was the enormous hero. Um, <laughs> that is extraordinary. Yeah. And um, so that's number one. That's the first one in the book. The other one that I think I've hinted at um, was Morrison. Morrison, uh, born in Geelong in, I think, pretty early, 1858. He's one of the earlier ones. Um, did all these extraordinary walking feats. He walked from... Uh, uh, um, when he finished uh, school, before he went to university, he walked from uh, Geelong to Adelaide, around the coast. It was a pretty rugged country then. There were no roads. Uh, and then he decided... Uh, he studied medicine at Melbourne University. Uh, and after... Have we got him? Yep, yeah, that's, there, him, that's him as yes. a 19-year-old. That's Hawker as a... Uh, um, Morrison as a 19-year-old. What year is this, uh, Ed? Oh, this, this would be 1880, right, right about then. Mm -hmm. Um he then canoed from northeastern Victoria to uh, down the Murray. Um, he then he did he went around the Pacific Islands a bit, and then he came back. He failed university, failed second year uh, medicine because he was doing all these things. Then he did that walk I mentioned uh, from uh, uh, Gulf of Carpentaria to Melbourne. Then he decided um, that uh, at that stage no one knew much about the interior of New Guinea. Mm. There were a couple of settlements on the coast. So he's only 21 and he gets the Age newspaper to finance a, um, an expedition. He, he's 21. Wow. He leads a group of five people into uh, New Guinea. They don't get very far. The natives aren't all that keen on them intruding. <laughs> and so he ends up with a spear there oh. 
and another one there uh, nearly dies, really serious. Uh, you know, he'd lost about a third of his weight and took him ages to get back to Melbourne. Got him back to <laughs> Melbourne and there was a surgeon there took that bit of the spear out, so the bit was still in there, but he couldn't, he was afraid to touch the bit in the stomach because it was resting against the spine and incapacitating his left leg. So the surgeon and Morrison got in a boat and went to the one place in the world where they had a surgeon skillful enough to do that, and that was Edinburgh. Because in those days, Scotland was sort of the centre of world medicine. And they got the thing out, and uh, he eventually recovered. Uh, then he stayed on, took a degree in uh, medicine at uh, Edinburgh University, came back and then worked in, in um, Spain for a while, then came back to Australia and worked in uh, Victoria for a couple of years. But he always wanted to go travelling, and with always every opportunity he'd go travelling. And so he then went to Asia, travel around there, and he decided to walk from Shanghai into Burma, um, which he did, and wrote a book about it. Uh, came back to Australia, hoping to get a job as a journalist in Australia. Was rejected as not being good enough, not up to it. Mm. So he went to London. His book was published, was very successful, and the Times made him... Um, their correspondent in, in Peking. That's how we got the name uh, uh, Morrison of Peking. So he went there and became enormously influential. In those days, a foreign correspondent could be. There weren't any academics or think tanks or anything like mm. that. Uh, and you know, the president of America consulted him, the emperor of Japan consulted him, um, and he got caught up in the Boxer Rebellion. And he was in his element there. Uh, he was in a legation keeping all the, the, the invaders at bay. And that's where he got shot in the leg. Mm. Um, anyhow, he had a remarkably colourful life. Um, and he also was quite a witty writer and had a diary with some quite witty comments in it. That's the main bits of humour I could get into my book was quotes from uh, Morrison about other people. Uh -huh. uh, so I think they're the two... Uh, well, I, think that, I mean, I haven't got a favourite. Uh, yeah. Other than, I suppose, Kelly, because Kelly was the one who got me started. Anyhow, uh, well, the, the backgrounds, the socio-economic backgrounds, do vary, correct? What do, what do they tell you about these characters? Well, that tells you something about Australian society. Any society is that of these ten, only three were really working class. Mm. Only three did not have significant help from their families. That's Hawker, the aviator, Wilkins, the explorer, and Baker, the sportsman. Uh, two were extremely wealthy. Kelly was left a fortune by his father, and so was Russell, the painter. So the musician and the painter were both never had to work a day in their life. And then the other five in the middle, they weren't, um, they were, I think they came from reasonably, reasonably well-off families in the sense they went to private schools, they went to university, uh, and they were able to travel. And, and I think at that time, only a minority were able to do that. They're not a... These ten aren't a cross-section of Australian life. They're mm. all very exceptional people. Um, we'll take some questions very soon, but before we do that, I mean, you've obviously been an accomplished economist and RBA governor and writing a book about history is obviously a new thing for you. What did you learn about the publishing industry given the dramatically changing nature of publishing and the digital evolution of media generally? How did you find... Is, is, there, is there a future in...? Well, it's a strange industry. It's a very strange industry. How so? Well, because... Because I didn't write about economics where I had people wanting to and I just stepped outside my comfort zone and just became someone else who's writing a book. 
And the fact is, out there, the, it's absolutely full. Tens of thousands of wannabe writers. Absolutely yeah. thousands of them. And there's a small number of publishers. Uh, and the publishers basically don't want to know them. Uh, if you've already got a reputation, yeah. you're okay. If you're trying to get, particularly someone who's just written a novel or something. Yeah. Or a Peter Fitzsimons who's just done a new book on uh, Captain Cook. Well, no, he's, he's, he's learned how to, uh, to <laughs> play the game. He's, le- he's learned how to play the system. Um, but for most people, uh, it's, it's very, very difficult. Yeah, to get and, into uh, that. Yeah. And, and uh, even getting an agent, an agent's not going to look at you unless they, no. know the, unless they know you will be acceptable to a large publisher. Now, having said that, I do have some sympathy for the publishers because the industry, we just don't have a big enough domestic market. Yeah. It's not as though we don't, as individuals, buy enough books. We do. We buy as many books as the Englishmen or, or the Americans do. But the market just... Uh, it's also and interesting, too, that the, uh, the book review sections for a lot of the newspapers seem to have shrunk in the last few years. Is that your sense as well? Yeah, I think it's happened. I mean, for example... Uh, the Australian used to have a, a literary that's review, right. monthly that's Australian right. literary review, yep. and that's gone. That was very good. Mm, indeed. Yeah. But, of course, you know, America and Britain, they have a much bigger market, so you'll still get those niche publications yeah. well, like well, the New York Review of Books. Yeah. And, and but it's true, of, um, it's true of books too, niche books. I mean, yeah. the publisher, what they're really looking for is a blockbuster. That it's a bestseller, something that sort of takes off. Uh, I'm told that... For the big commercial publishers, they only make money out of 15% of the books they publish. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll take some questions, but be, be remiss not to ask you at least one economics question given your background. Uh, we've, we had very weak retail figures uh, last week. Uh, there could be a very chaotic British exit from the European Union in coming months. There's no real sign of the trade war between China and America abating. Uh, the Chinese economy is a bit sluggish, down to 5 6% growth, which is pretty slow for the Chinese. Um, the RBA has been slashing interest rates. Its cash rate's now 75 basis points. Uh, what more can the RBA do to stimulate growth? Oh, I think I've made myself clear on that already. I think that um, once interest rates are negligible rates, which they are, there's really no value in further cuts. I don't think it would achieve anything. Uh, I, I haven't sort of shouted it from the rooftops. So I did say it quietly um, but to someone and have been quoted on that. I don't think there's any value in going any further. Okay. It's very easy for me to say that from my position. It's much more difficult when you're in, yeah. the, in the hot seat. But, uh, I, I... but in recent weeks we've had a former governor of the RBA, Stephen Grenville, uh, former Prime Minister Paul Keating, among others, saying that because interest rates can't stimulate the economy, ultra-low interest rates have run their course... We need a more expansionary fiscal policy, uh, big government infrastructure spending. How would you respond to that argument that we need big government to revive the economy, as Paul Keating himself has said? Well, I, first of all, you've got to ask, does anything actually have to be done? Um, I mean, economies half the time grow below average. It's not a big deal. Um, and particularly if you're growing below average, but your unemployment rate's flat. It's been about five and a quarter for the last two years. Not absolutely clear you have to do anything. But if it got worse and you had to do something, I don't think monetary policy could rescue you at all. I think mm. it would have to be on the fiscal side. Okay, so lower interest rates won't necessarily stoke inflation? No, I don't think so. No, okay. Inflation has not been caused by monetary or lack of inflation has not been caused by monetary policy. Okay. Massive global forces have, have caused that. Okay, well, questions on monetary policy, but also the book, more importantly... <laughs> yes, over there. I just wait for a microphone next to Richard. 
Yeah. They got Richard Nixon. Who did you leave out? Um, Who did you leave out? Yeah. Well, I, I, I left out the really prominent people. I told you left out Melbourne, Melbourne, my nation. Flory's my hero. I'd like to have put him in, but he's too famous. Um, I, I, I didn't really leave anyone out because I just kept finding people. And when I got to 10, I stopped. <laughs> Richard. <clears throat> Mr McFarlane, Morris and Peking was a real favourite of mine. I started off as a young journalist and thought, well, wow, this guy's done an enormous amount. And the thing that was so significant about him, and you sort of touched on this, was that when he would publish an article in The Times, and of course it took days for that information to get from his pen to the newspaper in London, he could move the stock exchange significantly with whatever he had to say in those uh, articles that he sent in. And of course, nowadays we see whether it's the Reuters or the Bloombergs or whatever, that they can move economies, certainly companies. But I'm wondering, with all of your experience and understanding of history, this follows up on what Tom said. We now have negative interest rates available for those who can't find something better to do with their money in Europe. We have had the idea of the possibility of positive easing discussed in Australia. In this very, very strange circumstance of financial uncertainty, what is there in history, what is there that should suggest that the lack of association between the so-called value of assets with such low interest rates and the whole concept of money is going to have some sort of a satisfactory income, particularly in the context that all of these circumstances in the past, if I've got it right, have been more or less solved with you know the likes of the United States with $16 trillion worth of debt, finishing up with inflation saving the day. I hate to ask you this in the context of the century before last, but uh, what do you think? Well, first of all, I have to congratulate you on turning a question about George Morrison uh, into a discussion of um, inflation. Um, <laughs> Uh, in, in George Morrison's day, they didn't have inflation. And we're back to George Morrison's day in that respect. Inflation is a relatively... Uh, it's essentially a Second World War phenomenon. Mm. It's something that happened between... Uh, in fact, it didn't happen for the first part of it. It's even narrower than that. It's essentially happened since about the mid-60s. Mm. And now it's gone away again. And you had so stagflation, got, then you had hyperinflation yeah, yeah, in the well, early 80s. Yeah. In a historical context, we're back to the way we always were. Yeah. And, and we've got to look upon, I think, the period during my career as being an aberration. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, Richard. Ian, just the down-to-earth practical aspects of writing this. I, I, I'm a huge fan of Churchill, and I keep wondering how he wrote you know, the Marlborough books and the, the Faithful Hours and the Finest Hours, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, how did you go about writing these? Did you have a secretary sitting at your bedside uh, doing this? <laughs> yeah, Churchill wrote 37 books and he was paid a fortune for each book. And the money that he was paid just for yeah. a journal article 
and Keynes was the same. The yeah. money you get yeah. paid in those days. I mean, Churchill bought Chartwell on the basis of, a, of uh, one uh, series of books. In my case, actually, I think it was easy because I chose simple form, which is 10 separate essays. I think writing one book, you could find yourself halfway through or two-thirds of the way through and sort of feel confused or lose enthusiasm or think, oh, I wish I had started it differently. Uh, but mine, I gave myself an easy task. I think 10, 10 essays is much easier. Mm. Uh, and I didn't pretend to be an academic historian. I don't have any footnotes, for example, in the, in the book. Uh, I do have a bibliography. I do have an index. Um, but I think I gave myself the easiest uh, uh, task you can have. Um, in the end, I did, yes. And I'm not a very good typist either. But <laughs> the thing is, you know, it took a long... Uh, uh, it, it, it was a good one. Well, you write, I think I tended to write it longhand and then I'd type it. And in typing it, you find errors you've made and better ways of doing things and better ways of expressing things. So you actually do yeah. a lot of it once you're, once you're actually in your Word, Word document. Uh, yeah, I, I know I, I didn't need a secretary. I have a proofreader. <laughs> <laughs> and on, on Churchill, um, I don't know if you know this, but um, there have been a thousand biographies published on Winston Churchill, a thousand. And uh, one of the most recent ones was written by the British historian Andrew Roberts. I had the pleasure of interviewing him on my Radio National program. You are reading it now, yeah. And uh, the New York Times and the London Telegraph have uh, both said in different reviews that it is the best biography, which is saying something given that there have been a 1,000 biographies. And we at CIS are hoping to bring out Andrew Roberts here either in 2020 or 2021. You know, there's also a fascinating Churchill book called No More Champagne. And the book is about how did Churchill support himself. Uh, Churchill tries to claim that he was, uh, didn't have any inherited money. He did. He had quite a bit. If, if you're the yeah, grandson of the Duke right. of Marlborough, you have that's quite right, a bit. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, but his spending was so extravagant that he, had, he was constantly uh, going into debt. Twice he had to be bailed out by rich aristocratic friends. <laughs> and he worked very hard with these books. He was constantly... Um, uh, writing these books and getting paid a large amount of money for it. But he was, he was a gambler. He used to go to Monte yeah. Carlo and gamble. Later in life, he bought racehorses. <laughs> I mean, he, he, how they ever made him Chancellor of the Exchequer. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he wanted to win the Nobel Prize for peace, but he wanted for in literature. literature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Adrian. Um, thank you, Mr. McFarlane, for this book launch. Um, just a question of mine. Um, doesn't really sound broad, but if this book was actually promoted or discussed at a writers' festival, how would you imagine the scenario? Um, I haven't been to a writers' festival. <laughs> uh, I doubt if I will be invited. Um, uh, I've, I've, I'm not making any attempts to uh, go to a writers' festival. Yes. Uh, well, why is that? What, what scares well, you about them? Well, one of the problems... Um, is this is a very mercenary problem? <laughs> As Mark Tedeschi told me, this your friend Mark Tedeschi, uh, he said, if you have a function like this, there's only one book out there on the shelf that can be sold to you, and it's the book you wrote. You go to a writers' festival, there's 400 <laughs> books, and you're one of them. <laughs> and most people are only going to buy three or four books. That's right. It's highly unlikely it'll be yours. Um, 
that's, but uh, now I, I, and in fact, he said it's highly unlikely that many people will even turn up. Um, he, he's written a couple of very good books. He wrote a book on the Grand Thorn Affair. He wrote a book on the uh, Mile Creek Massacre. Mm. And he went to a, a, he was sent to a, a writers' festival in Perth by his publisher. <coughs> and he said he was really embarrassed to have been paid all this money to go to the writers' festival because there's umpteen competing at any given time. There's umpteen competing little auditoriums around the place. He said about seven people came to his, and he went all the way over to Perth. Uh, so I think I don't think the people who go to writers' festivals are particularly. They're not the demographic that I'm really. I thought I think yeah. I'm really going to uh, take an interest in. In this is classic narrative, old-fashioned really narrative yeah. history. Yeah, and let's be frank. It's uh, generally speaking with writers' festivals in this country, they're not really ideologically diverse group of writers, no, are they? No, no, they're not. No. Okay. No, I think they probably wouldn't invite me because they say he's already presented at the CIS. <laughs> we can't have him. Fred Helmer. G'day, Fred. Hey, uh, Ian. Thank you. Uh, Two related questions. One is, in your, having done this, looking back on it, what were the things that you really loved and what were the parts of the, putting the book together that you really didn't like? And in light of that, is there another book in your mind not on economics? Um, oh, I think, Fred, I think the, uh, the answer is the research was enjoyable and interesting. The actual writing, I didn't mind. I've, I've, most of my career, I've been, I've written a huge amount of my career, most of which it hasn't even got my name on it. Mm. So from, you know, from the age of 21 onwards, I've been writing. So that wasn't a challenge to me. Um, it, it was the having to sell yourself. That was the bit that, uh, and, and I was lucky. I had some good contacts. But a lot of writers wouldn't have those contacts, even with the contacts, like those three publishers I mentioned. Mm. I went at the top. I knew the boss. And I got rejected. <laughs> um, would I like to write another one? Well, I'm tossing up with a couple of ideas. But again, they're niche ideas. They're never going to be uh, bestsellers. Um, one of the things I was tossing up was an idea of writing a book on architecture. How about that? On Federation architecture. Mm. That was one... And there's another one which is sort of economics that I've been thinking about. Um, they'd both be small, well, they'd be very different books, but now I'm thinking about it, but I'm not sure whether I'll go ahead and do it. Mm. Uh, I might, something even, but I haven't got something sort of lined up. Several people said, uh, you've, you've, given, you've written about these ten people, find another ten. Uh, well, I'm not going to do that. Because in a sense, I didn't, they found me. Uh, well, the first five of them found me. I didn't. I had never heard of them, and they popped up, yeah. as I said, in a book that was not about them. Uh, I, the other five actually knew a little bit about, and so I added them to make it a, a more substantial book. But this one, as I say, came about almost almost by accident. Any more questions? Yes, one more at the back. Uh, thank you uh, for your presentation. Uh, my question is concerning Mr. Hawker. Yeah. In the past, there was a company that used to make either aircrafts or aircraft components, and it was called Hawker de Havilland. Yep. Was he associated with that? Yes. The history, it's, the history of it is, uh, as I understand it, originally there was the Sopwith company, and the Sopwith was the one that made all the fighters in the First World War. At the end of the First World War, Sopwith went broke because suddenly there were no orders and there was a whole lot of surplus aeroplanes sitting around. Uh, so they had to find a way of 
winding that up and establishing a new company with a separate identity. And they chose Hawker as chairman. Now, this is a kid. He was 22 with no education, mm. went over to England. And at the age of 30, he's now the, he's now the chairman of, of an aeroplane company, executive chairman. Uh, and so that and then Sopwith himself, Tommy Sopwith, eventually came back. Well, sad news. Hawker dies. He doesn't have a long life. He has a very short life. He dies in a plane crash. And Sopwith comes back and takes it over. Um, so that company was called, I think it was called Hawker Aviation. And then it took over another company called Armstrong Sidley and it became Hawker Sidley. Uh, and then uh, in the mid-70s, and it was very successful in the Second World War, it produced the Hurricane, which was the workhorse of the RAF in the Second World War. 15,000 Hurricanes were built. Uh, it was a very successful company. Um, but then the British government nationalised it in the mid-70s and it became British Aerospace. But the non-aeroplane parts, some of those survived. And uh, Hawker de Havilland's one, Hawker Pacific's another. There's two or three little things still around that are in the... that they re, um, recondition uh, uh, planes or they provide parts or whatever. So there's little bits of it left. Um, and I think there's part of it in Australia. It's called Hawker Pacific. And if you look up their website, it actually has a portrait of Hawker. They know who they are and they know what their origin is. They've got a, a portrait of Hawker on it. And there's another bit in, uh, in America which has been taken over by Lufthansa. It's still got Hawker in its name, uh, but I doubt whether anyone... Is now owned, as I said, now owned by Lufthansa. I doubt if anyone knows where the, the Hawker name came from there. But little bits of it remain, very small bits. Well, um, I think I can speak for all of us here and say that it's been a great pleasure having you here, Ian. Uh, we at CIS, as I mentioned in my introductory remarks, place a lot of emphasis on history. One of the great laments about our coverage of primary and uh, even even um, a senior school education is that uh, Australian history is not taught as well as it probably could be. Uh, I think it's fair to say that in most states, even the British, the early British settlement of Australia in the late 1700s, early 1800s, it's just not covered these days. So history is important, and I think when politicians and policymakers act in the present, they often learn from the past and helping create the future. So with that, uh, please join me in thanking Ian McFarlane. The, the, book, the book is called Ten Remarkable Australians. They made their mark on the world but were forgotten. It's got a great forward, brief forward, but a great forward by our greatest living historian, Geoffrey Blaney. Copies are available. In fact, Geoffrey makes a very good point there. He says that he thinks the same thing, that people are losing interest in history and biography might be a way of bringing perhaps, it back. Perhaps. There's biography. I mean, a lot of people like biographies. It's yeah. a story. It's personal development. Thanks, mate. That was very All good. Right. Thanks.